Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. Thank you, Sien and Dr. Winemaker for coming on to the podcast. And today, if uh, before we start, if we can you know, get you just to introduce yourselves a little bit, and uh, we'll just take it from there. Sure. Um, I'm Samantha Winemaker. Most people refer to me as Sammy. Uh, I am a palliative care physician. I've been working for 17 years in people's homes, full-time providing palliative care. And I'm Sien Xiao. I am a healthcare researcher at McMaster University. And I have also spent a similar amount of time doing healthcare research and policy research trying to figure out ways to improve the experience for patients and families facing serious illness. Thank you for that. And, and then for the palliative care, how have you seen it from your perspective, Sien, and from your perspective, Sammy, in terms of, you know, you're the, profe- uh, the physician and how have people have been receptive to, you know, the whole palliative care piece? Well, maybe we could start off by telling you our story. Perfect. Would that be helpful? Yeah, that'd be helpful. <laughs> okay. Um, well, Cien, you can correct me if I'm not representing you, but um, we've talked about this enough that I think it, I'm confident to say that both Cien and I um, became quite frustrated uh, after years of working um, trying to change uh, the way that patients and families experience a journey along a progressive life-limiting illness. Um, we were uh, researching, mostly CN, uh, and teaching, both of us, um, and doing clinical work, mostly me. And, you know, the two of us just became very, very alarmed after so many years of hearing the same broken patterns over and over again, the long and the short of it being that so many patients told us very, very late in their illness that they wished that they had been in the know longer and earlier in their illness, that there was a sense that they didn't have all the facts and information and truths about their illness uh, for months or years. And that suddenly somewhere very late in the illness, they realized there's nothing more they can do for me. And then they got transferred to palliative care. um, And it felt like a slap in the face and patients and families were anxious and scared and not sleeping at night. And this was amplifying their symptoms. And so Sienna and I said, enough, this is enough. We will continue to research as much as we can. We will continue to teach healthcare providers as much as we can, but we need to somehow take the experiences that we're hearing about at the end of these illness journeys, these often horrible experiences, We need to understand what makes a journey complicated and what makes a journey better. And we need to somehow reposition this much earlier in the illness journey and share this information with the world around us so that their patients and families are no longer left at the mercy of healthcare providers 
who may be very uncomfortable, especially in the beginning of an illness, uh, shedding light for patients and families on what their illness is going to look like over time and how it's going to unfold and what is the natural history or the story of the illness and help people see the long view of the illness um, so that they can have a better illness experience from beginning, middle, and at the end so that we no longer, hopefully, if we do this right, have to meet so many people at the very end who say, what? You're kidding me. No one ever told us that. And so we were tired of hearing that. So this is where our labor of love was born. And I can, I can hand over to CN to tell you about what we did. Yeah, so we really looked to try to find a solution that could be moved upstream. And another way of saying that is I realized that so much of the work of palliative care happens at end of life, or that's the typical notion of that. But to improve the end, we had to go upstream to the beginning. And I can tell you from my personal story, when I lost my mother from breast cancer, when I was 10 years old, you know, during the, the four years that she had cancer, like no one ever talked about what planning ahead and what to expect. We were just sort of day by day trying to plan until one day, you know, she was in the hospital and they weren't going to release her. And that's where she died. You know, we were really caught off guard. Palliative care was not something we were talking about and thinking about. And it is, it wasn't just something that could have been put in at the end. It could have been throughout. And 30 years later, I'm still hearing the same stories from patients and families saying, I wish I had palliative care sooner, or why didn't someone tell me that? And that could be knowledge about all kinds of things earlier on. So we really realized we needed to do something different. And one of the big insights that we have was a lot of the things that we were teaching clinicians and talking about in our research, that could be positioned as information for patients and families. They deserved that information. We, they were smart enough to have it and use it and be the people who could initiate the conversations. We didn't need to wait for healthcare providers to be the gatekeeper of that information. And so we realized a revolution was required and we called our sort of movement, our project, the waiting room revolution, which was this idea that patients and families often are in the waiting room, scared, not knowing what to expect at the mercy of, of hopefully, you know, the healthcare system, but we could flip that around. If we could empower them with knowledge, tips, and skills, they could take charge of their journey and move from the backseat of their story to the front seat and at least be activated and be in the know and not in the dark. Definitely for that, because it is quite, I guess you could say a kind of a daunting task as well for people to be faced with knowing that the, I guess the end uh, result is an unknown journey and being able to be, I guess, given the tools needed to make a much more, I guess, comfortable decision, so to speak. Um, like, and as a physician, who else would then be involved in helping or assisting individuals to make a, an informed decision, or at least to know what can be expected on this journey um, in, with palliative care, with the palliative care approach? Yeah, so the palliative care approach is a philosophy of care that can be um, delivered by any healthcare provider, any nurse or any doctor. You do not need a palliative care specialist 
to be able to um, provide a palliative care approach. Um, it's a philosophy. It basically means that when someone has a progressive life-limiting illness, step one, we first have to acknowledge that that is the pattern of this illness. This is not a chronic illness like arthritis. Um, it's not a chronic illness like asthma. Um, these illnesses that we're talking about that require a palliative approach are from the time they're diagnosed considered progressive, meaning they'll get worse over time and they're life limiting, meaning that they will shorten a person's life. Some of these illnesses have um, uh, average life expectancy of a couple of years, and some of these illnesses have an average life expectancy of 10 to 15 years. Okay, but what we do know is that life does not stay the same for these people from year to year to year. So step one is saying, look, We've seen these illnesses over and over again, Parkinson's, COPD, congestive heart failure, ALS, multi-system atrophy, uh, dementia, um, many cancers. We know what they're like. We know how they unfold. So we need to make sure as doctors and nurses that we walk two roads with patients and families, that we can hope for the best hope that there's a treatment, hope that there's a second line treatment, hope that these investigations will be helpful, hope that we can slow and calm this illness down and stretch it out as long as possible. But at the same time, we have to walk that other road, which is peppering in a palliative approach right from the beginning, which means inviting patients and families into knowing more about what that road looks like. While we hope for the best, how much do you want to know about what this average illness looks like so that you can walk two roads with me? So palliative approach is peppered in to the journey right from the beginning from everyone involved, okay? At times along the illness journey, a palliative care specialist nurse or palliative care specialist doctor might be invited into the story uh, to provide expert consultation. Um, and that shouldn't be reserved to the very end of life. So even at the beginning of some of these illnesses, if there are particularly difficult, um, complicated communication pieces or um, planning pieces, or symptom management pieces. A palliative care expert can be consulted if the care team that's caring for those patients needs a little bit of help or a phone a friend. And so a palliative care specialty team can just trot along with the other care providers, everyone doing their piece. Um, and that's the most modern way of looking at what is the difference between a palliative approach and a palliative care specialist. They both can exist alongside each other and it's not reserved only for palliative care specialists. You were asking me who should be involved in, in uh, those types of conversations. Um, so it's any doctor's um, responsibility to ask their patients and families uh, 
how much do you understand about the diagnosis that you've just been given? Um, are you the kind of person who would like to know as much as possible about your illness? Um, what kind of style of information detail do you like to know? And that gives the doctor his or her marching orders. Okay, now I know a little bit more about this patient who's just been diagnosed with COPD. And so it looks like they're the kind of people who are planners. They tell me they want to know as much information as possible. And they tell me that they are the kind of people that usually do a lot of planning. So then I know as a doctor how much information to offer them. But these conversations are not reserved for the end of life for palliative care specialists to invite for the very first time. That's when it becomes problematic, when we're unraveling these complicated conversations at the 11th hour, when already people have made tons of important decisions without the bird's eye view or the long view of their illness. Because I'm... I know that Dr. Halen, he had indicated there should be a, like a dear doctor letter to indicate what people's requests are when things get to a more intense uh, period along this progression. And should that as well be included right at the very beginning to, to know, go ahead. Yeah, I love that idea of a dear doctor letter when, you know, about important decisions like who your substitute decision maker should be, or, you know, do you want to be on a feeding tube and what's important to you? But the reality is even that is very late in the illness. I mean, that is in the context of, of being admitted to an ICU or, or, you know, feeding tubes are things that happen at the end. In some ways, this idea of a dear doctor letter is about who I am and what's important to me. And that should be coloring every decision you make right even up at the beginning of do I want treatment or what are the consequences of my treatment? And so what Sammy and I have been working really hard on num numerous years, lots of coffee conversations, but we're very excited is we really went back to go, what of all the thousands of patients that Sammy has treated over the years and thousands of patients and families and providers that I've interviewed for my research, we were sort of like, what was it about the not so good stories, which frankly we often hear, and what was different about them from the the better stories, one where people felt more prepared, more in control, they had more choices, they just, and they had less, you know, uh, they were less complex grief after. What was different about it? What did they do different? And we really tried to think about that because that would be the difference of changing the storyline. It wasn't just about, you know, you need to ask these questions or get this drug or get this pill. It was a whole philosophy. And we were proud to come up with seven skills that we, feel that those who are in the know have and practice and do that are different. And this is what we talk about in our podcast, The Waiting Room Revolution. And some of those are what Sammy just talked about. The very first skill is walking two roads. The idea you need to plan, uh, hope for the best, but plan for the rest. And then once you're able to understand that there is a planning phase, you're not planning for death. You are preparing for the what ifs, the decisions that you need to make. Like, you know, will there be a time where I need to sell my house? Will there be a time where it will be harder for me to walk the stairs? Will there be a time where I will want to quit working? I mean, these are things that are not just about medical decisions. These are life decisions. And so the very first one is walking two roads, which really sets up all the others, which um, Sammy talked about zooming out and asking the big picture of the illness. I mean, that is one of the most important things that people don't do. 
of where am I at in my illness? And I think that's especially important for people with long-term conditions, like uh, people who are, have loved ones in long-term care, because the years before long-term care, they also had that condition and they were wondering where are we at in this illness and what decisions do I need to make? All of these things are connected. And then currently, like right now, what is the resources that people can access, especially for people in long-term care and their proxies or their caregivers? How can they be able to access and make sure that this happens as well? Okay, well, they can listen to our podcast. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, I mean, you, you can just go online um, to the Waiting Room Revolution and uh, season one, episode one to 10, um, will share all the most important skills that patients and families who had a better journey um, embodied. Uh, and they're not steps like uh, you have to do step one before you do step two. They're ways of being, they're mindset changes. Um, it's really just seeing, it's like putting a filter in front of you after you listen to them and having, you know, a, a filter through which you can see things differently. Um, that your role as a patient and your role as a caregiver or a family member is different than when you before you listen to the podcast series, that I am a really important um, driver of my own healthcare. Uh, I can't change the disease, the illness. I can't change the biology or the science of it, but I can and will with my crew of family or caregivers can change the experience. It's like very, very, um, hopeful and very activating and very empowering. So hopefully after people uh, listen to the series, they feel more in control. Yes. And that's what we heard from so many patients and families, just this feeling like I'm floating in the water with no buoy or no anchor. And I'm just like floating this way or floating that way. And this really lets people land on their two feet and um, make individual person-centered um, decisions. It's really yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and connected to that, of how is, is it, it, that directly connects to one of our skills, which was tag your it and you know, anticipating ripple effects. There's, those are two of them. So the ripple effects is how important the family is to the patient story, and they have to you know, put your mask on first. That's one of our tips. And tagging tag it, we hear from um, Karen Cummings, whose mother was in long-term care, about how she didn't realize she had to be the project manager of, of her mother's care. And she was waiting to see who would be the coordinator, and she didn't realize she was it, she and her sister. And she tells her story, and through it, we really talk about some of the key tips of tag it. And it's hard to say, here are the resources, because wherever you live, it might be different. They change region to region. So it's not as helpful to say, hey, call 211 or it's this is the thing. It changes, right? And your insurance, all these things, your condition. But it's, we give more, uh, like maybe a couple levels up to say, look, some of the tips are talk to other people who have done that. Do your homework. Be, mm -hmm. a, be a detective. Karen Cummings talks about, you know, pretending to be a Columbo. You have to pretend, you have to be a detective. And a lot of what we're talking about isn't so much what, what are the tips, it's how to find the information that's right for you. And we, we give prompts for questions 
but it's not even about the questions because you don't know what you don't know. You know, we try to illuminate here are the things that people wish they had known sooner. And so we're going to share that with you. But a lot of it is, is having the courage and the skills to keep asking it in different ways so you can get what you need. Um, so a lot of resource finding is about what you don't need now, but what you might need in the future. And you didn't even know you might need it because you're not there yet, but it's preparing for that. And so the questions are a lot about what is going to happen looking ahead that again, that zooming out mm -hmm. so that I can, as I'm preparing for what's ahead, I can start to know what I'm going to need and who to talk to and what to buy and, you know, how to, and how to plan. Yeah. This is much more than advanced care planning. Um, the concept of advanced care planning is integrated into um, the information we share, but this is much broader than advanced care planning. You know, I, sorry, I wanted to share something from our, um, uh, we just had a podcast club, like a book club. And just to, um, one more thing I was going to add to what Sian was saying is that it's um, not just about getting information uh, and asking questions and getting answers. What we realized when we had this podcast club um, and from, uh, you know, some of the episodes we, we taped was that people sometimes can ask questions can get answers and can get information, but they don't know how to string it together. They don't know the meaning of it. What did it mean that I got the answers to what my CAT scan showed? What does it mean that we've decided to try a different chemotherapy? Um, what does it mean when they say, um, you know, if this doesn't work, there's something else, you know? So people don't seek the meaning as much as they seek answers and they go hand in hand. Yeah, no, definitely. And what you're saying, what the, both of you have been saying is these are the conversations that are being had in long-term care in terms of the whole re-imaging, the re-different approach to how care should be handled and looked at. Like the same themes are, are definitely coming up and definitely need to be changed, you know, bringing forward with all of this, because I guess, as, whether it's a caregiver, family member, they need as well the support to be, as you said, to be that project manager and to know where to go, where to be able to access all of that information. And I take it you've seen where the difference if, if somebody has been, um, I guess, have access to the information, mm -hmm. what that has done for them. I don't know if you can be able to speak to that, either CN or Sammy. Yeah, I mean, we both speak to everything. So we just take turns. But uh, yeah, so, you know, the difference is that if people are in the know, patients and family, and they have access to this type of information, um, they can put anything that happens in perspective. So, you know, my loved one has a pneumonia. What to do about that pneumonia, whether to treat it or not, whether to treat it in the long-term care facility versus go to the hospital, yes. really those decisions cannot be made unless someone has an understanding of where is their loved one at in this journey. Um, and, you know, that makes a difference for decision-making. So um, having that scaffolding or the architecture of what the illness is going to look like and being able to put your finger on the pulse of where your loved one is at in the illness journey can set the stage and foundation for any decisions that need to be ha happen. And also in a very proactive 
calm um, way instead of crisis, reactive, back and forth to the ER, to the hospital, um, you know, families, anxiety, and patients' um, expression of symptoms, you know, can be affected by having more information in the sense that people are less anxious, less scared, less fearful, and therefore, guess what? Symptoms are not as amplified. If I understand, you know, where I'm at in my illness, what to expect, and I'm in the know, then probably my physical pain is going to naturally feel better because we know that physical symptoms are influenced by so many other domains like fear and anxiety. Yeah, and one thing that I have learned from, you know, working alongside Sammy is it there is a whole part about asking questions and the meaning making, but even just role modeling that you're the way that you are and telling as a patient or a family saying, I'm open to having this discussion. I want to know what's ahead. Let's others know that you're not afraid of us, that you're open to talking about it, that this isn't a taboo topic that you should, you know, be tiptoe around. And that's very important in long-term care, especially because uh, Mary Lou Kelly, uh, you know, someone that I've learned a lot from as a researcher, she talks about how she's done palliative care training in long-term care homes. And even the, you know, the managers who are trying to identify who should be getting a palliative care approach, they, they're scared to name people who should be getting a palliative care approach because they don't, they, the quote is, they don't want to feel like an executioner. Mary Lou, I can't, you know, they can't do that. I don't want to be giving up hope on them. And that is exactly what we are trying to change, innovate, and take away that scary language. We, everything we're talking about are skills that you should have when you're facing a serious illness right from diagnosis, not about end of life. And it is, you know, this idea of uh, not just even a surprise if they die in the next year. It's really about, you know, if they have a progressive illness, we should be open to be thinking of this lens of what's important to them, what information do they need to know. And that means patients and families can be the ones to be advocating for an early palliative care approach. They don't need to wait for the, you know, the busy nurses and PSWs to say, hey, you now get a butterfly in your door. It's, hey, you know what? We know this. We don't want, if this happens, we don't want him to be transferred or she to be hospital. We understand that this is the last chapter, but we want to make it the best. And with your help, you know, these are the things that you can proactively do to role model to the facility you're in that we know that, there's a one-way road. We want to make that road as, as comfortable, as great, as positive, as full of life as possible. Um, so don't be afraid to invite us into the conversation about what is optimal care and the choices we're going to have to make, because there will be choices. No, thank you both for that. I definitely appreciate your time. And this has been a really Thank you for great, listening uh, to this episode. So and if you liked you it, make sure please make sure to notes, like, so subscribe, and follow wherever well. you're listening to and podcasts. That's wonderful. Thank you for having us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah thank you, Wendy. It was fun. Thank it you. was, it was. And it, it-